Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we'll be talking with Hannibal B. Johnson. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, and the Blueprint Men's Summit. He is also president of media sales at BET Networks and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, we're sitting down with Harvard Law graduate, accomplished author, consultant, attorney, and professor Hannibal B. Johnson. Hannibal serves on the Federal 400 Years of African American History Commission as chair of the Education Commission for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission and has served on numerous other boards and leadership positions revolving around education, equality, and health. Today, we'll be discussing his experiences, ventures, and pushes for change and equality. Let's get started. have the abilities to sort of focus on a lot of things. I mean, you went to Harvard, so you're a smart guy. Why did you lean into this particular uh, part of uh, our history? And, you know, where did we go from here? But I want to start off by Hannibal, tell me a little bit of something about yourself and um, your journey and how you got here today. I grew up uh, in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is about 100 miles southeast of Tulsa. I really never had much exposure to Tulsa, nor did I know anything about Tulsa history. I went to the University of Arkansas as an undergraduate. I had a double major in economics and sociology, and I decided that I wanted to enhance my options by going to law school. That was my philosophy at the time. There's that word options that I hear options. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And I applied to several law schools and got accepted at several law schools. Ended up going to Harvard, which is one of the better decisions I've ever made. We can talk about why. Um, But I knew that I wanted to be back in my home region and Tulsa is a city uh, within that region. So I would have considered Tulsa and Kansas City and Dallas, Little Rock, places like that. I ended up clerking at a law firm here in Tulsa, coming back to that law firm where I worked for several years. Um, My parents really modeled community service for me. So that's deeply ingrained into my psyche. And I became involved with the community was asked at one point to write a regular guest editorial column for the black newspaper called the Oklahoma Eagle. At one point I was assigned to do a story, a multi-part story on the history of the black community called the Greenwood District, fondly dubbed Black Wall Street for its entrepreneurial and economic prowess. I became highly interested in that topic, found it fascinating. Ended up writing a book, the first book, which came out in 1998 called Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. And I've been really enmeshed in this history ever since that point. I've written three other books specifically on that topic, including a book that just came out a few months ago called Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. Because I know that the eyes of the world will be on Tulsa for the anniversary of the massacre, May 31st, June 1st, 2021. And the question on the minds of folk and on the tongues of folk will be, what is different about the Tulsa of 2021 as compared to the Tulsa of 1921? And so that book really responds 
to that critical inquiry that's going to be um, really surrounding us as we approach the commemorative anniversary of the massacre. So tell me why Harvard was one of the best decisions of, of your life. Um, it's a robust, vigorous, challenging environment, number one. Number two, it brought me out of my little cocoon because I'd never really been anywhere. Okay. Number three, um, the black students on campus when I was there in the mid eighties, uh, it's the most supportive group of black students I've ever been around in my life, bar none. Um, and I think that that is uh, contrary to what people might think about an environment like Harvard. It's people, I think the stereotype is that it's a cutthroat, um, it is competitive, but not cutthroat. I mean, it was much more collegial than cutthroat for me. Um, so it was just a wonderful experience. And that credential is something that can be never taken away from you. And, and it, it, it actually does give you that additional cred when you need it. I mean, it, it actually does do that for you. So, so you got a law degree. Did, did you practice law and, and what type? Was it civil rights law or? So I, I, I worked in a, in, a, in a, you know, silk stocking kind of law firm uh, for several years here in Tulsa. It was an all white law firm. Um, I did a little bit of litigation at the beginning and I ended up doing um, employee benefits law for a while, which is kind of a, an in-office kind of dull routine kind of experience. And I found it uh, not particularly gratifying ultimately. So I think if I, had, if I had taken another direction at the outset, if I had gone and done First Amendment law would be, would be my ideal thing to do right out of law school. If I had done that, maybe I'd still be doing that. Uh, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And I just, this is just something that, that happened. Um, I think you have to understand opportunity when it presents itself. And you have to understand what your passions are, what fulfills you, and you have to go that way. Um, because you, you're gonna be, if not financially better off, you're gonna be better off in a holistic sense if you pursue your pursue something that really uh, you find meaningful and fulfilling. That's, that, 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 that's great. So uh, 2020, you know, is what we're calling the year of two pandemics. You know, one called COVID-19, uh, the other one called the inequity and inequality of, of race in America. As we and everybody in 2020 was awakened, or at least they say they were, and say they're going to do better. What is your personal feeling around race in America uh, over the last 12 months? Are, are people really awakened? Do you believe we're really going to see change and, and, and what is that gonna look like for black people in this country? Well, I am an optimist, I'm a hopeful person. So my, 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 my wish is that this, it, this becomes a, a movement and not a, a moment. Um, I think the last few months have been, and the last few years, frankly, under the prior administration, have, I'd use the word revelatory. So what, what I appreciate is knowing what the landscape actually looks like as opposed to acting as though it looked like the way I want it to be. So I discovered over the last few years that we're not nearly as advanced as I had hoped that we were uh, because the last few years, people who harbored 
um, these sort of racist, xenophobic, and, and other kinds of prejudices felt much more comfortable coming from behind the sheets and behind the shades and letting themselves be revealed. In a way, that's a blessing. I mean, I sort of, it, it's helpful for me to know, to know them. Uh, and right. they are in many ways the enemy. And I wanna know who the enemy is. And I wanna know how much work it is that we still must do. Cause I've been, work, I've been doing that work for a long time. And I've, I've always thought that, that the work is non-ending. Like I don't foresee a day when racism just goes away magically. That's not going to happen. So I see it as a chronic, a chronic challenge that we have to face. And um, the frustration, though, has been this the seeming retrogression in this work. In other words, thinking that we had had advanced to to a certain point and having really come up quite short of that. And part of what we've seen the last few years, in my analysis, is a function of a backlash against Barack Obama as a black president. Got it. So I, I have a, a, a premise, Hannibal, and, and I'm gonna run it by you. I believe that a lot of the racism and inequality and injustices in our country are based on a value proposition. Because our history hasn't been told consistently that people don't really understand the value that Black people bring to this country. Uh, they don't understand our history. They don't understand our contributions. They just don't know. And that's for a number of reasons. I believe if they were educated and made aware of the contributions that we have made it in this country. It might not be utopia, but I do believe it would be better. And that's why I'm so fascinated and interested in people like yourself who tell that story and tell the value and contributions that we've created to this country. What do you think about that? Um, I, I, I'll buy that to a certain level. I think there are some people who, if not ill-informed or who, if better informed, would understand, for example, the need for remedial measures like affirmative action, uh, like targeted initiatives. I think there are other people whose value proposition has, has really to do with the sort of binary privilege or not privileged. I'm privileged and what's important to me singularly is holding on to my privilege. And I don't care what you've contributed to, to the country. Um, I like my position of privilege and I'm not really ready to sacrifice any of that. I think there are those people too. So you've been telling this story uh, about Black Wall Street, let's say 20 plus years. Have you seen any impact or change that it has on Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, or any place else in this country, has it had some impact in a change of views? Yeah, certainly in Oklahoma, um, it's it's rare that that I run into people who who bristle when I talk about the history of the of the Greenville community, either the Black Wall Street part of it or the massacre part of it. In fact, the reaction I'm much more likely to get from Black people and white people is, "Why didn't I learn this growing up? I should know this. This is important stuff." It ought to be part of the curriculum. That is a 
is a relatively standard reaction in a blood red state. I mean, Oklahoma is as conservative as it gets. Great. So as you prepare to celebrate the 100th anniversary, what are sort of the key things that you want Black people and white people to understand about that moment of time? Well, first, if, there are a lot of things. For me, there are a lot of things. Um, one is the massacre is not the be all and end all. It's not, it, that's not the story. That, that's a chapter in a much larger narrative. And the narrative is about the, the indomitable human spirit. It's about people. It's about a community. And this one event didn't define the community uh, in the way that people think it, it did. Uh, number two is really part of the legacy that I would like to, to see elevated is the Black Wall Street mindset. So it's, it's not something that's tied geographically necessarily to Tulsa. It's about that indomitable spirit around econ economics and entrepreneurship that Black people can be successful as um, economic engines and entrepreneurs have done it before against really horrific odds. And if, if that is the case, is that a if that's the foundation that's been laid for us, if those are the shoulders upon which we stand, our possibilities are virtually unlimited. And our, our reach is global and not confined to a narrow, insular, segregated community in a town called, called Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want people to understand that we ignore the lessons of our history at our own peril. Mm -hmm. That if, if we don't know our history, then some of these things can be repeated. Uh, let's, let's think about the underlying mindset and philosophy that led to what happened on January 6th of this year. It, it, is, not, it is not dissimilar from the kind of philosophy and mindset that, that precipitated 1921 in Tulsa. So give some advice to the 17, 18-year-old Hannibal Johnson in 2021. What advice as we sort of come through this COVID-19 pandemic, and we're also in the middle of this uh, social injustice movement, what advice would you give to yourself at this moment of time at 18 or 19 years old? Knowing what you know about Black Wall Street and social economics in this country. Um, well, change happens, but it happens ever so slowly and incrementally. Don't get frustrated, don't get disheartened, just continue the struggle. I mean, that's something that Certainly as a 17 or 18 year old, I, I don't think I would be able, would have been able to entertain. Um, Cause I would be, I, I certainly would, I would be frustrated. Uh, understand that you have agency, that you have the capacity to actually make a, a meaningful difference in your world. It's not about, um, it's, it's not about the things that are, are done to you necessarily. It's about your ability uh, to deal with the challenges that are, that are presented to you. Those are a couple of things that I, that I think I would think. And I, the other thing is um, 
follow your passion. Because I, I, I certainly did not even know that coming out of law school because I wasn't following my passion. I was following what I thought I should be doing coming out of law school, what, what other people were doing. Um, and if I had followed my passion, I probably would have gone a different direction. So, so now I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to talk to small business owners because uh, as I, I, I did some background in history on you and understood this story of Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's fascinating uh, about the different types of businesses that were there. I mean, you know, from uh, the transportation business that, that they had, uh, it was, it's just all fascinating. So as small and mid-sized businesses are being crushed right now, what advice would you give to them based on the information you knew how black people and their struggle and still were successful during that time to black entrepreneurs at this particular time? There's a lot to be gained from collaboration um, as black and POC entrepreneurs. Um, we don't always have to be competing. There are ways that we can uh, collaborate and support one another, patronize one another, promote one another. I, that's something on which I think we could do a much, much better job. Um, the market, the market is not a market constricted necessarily by race. And so if you want to be, if, if your goal is to be a successful entrepreneur, a successful business person, then why would you limit yourself to a narrow market when there is a much broader market out there? So just because you're a black entrepreneur doesn't mean that all your customers and clients have to be black. But what sense does that make as a business matter? Um, while, while you might have a product that appeals mostly to, to a certain segment of the population, there are ways to expand those markets. And I think of something as simple as, as soul food. We think of soul food as food that black people like, but the reality is, yeah, black people like it, but so do a whole lot of other people if you market it properly. It's an experience that you can market. I, I, absolutely. So tell us about some of the things that will be happening this year around this 100th anniversary. What are some of the things we can look forward to? We plan to really host a raft of events around the actual anniversary, which is May 31st, June 1st. So around that period, there'll be a whole bunch of things is, going is, on. Is that the, um, is that Memorial Day weekend or is that the weekend after? Sometimes it's at the end of the month and sometimes it's the week before. I can't remember what it is this this year, but yeah, okay. you're right. It's, it's, it's around that period. Right. So uh, for a full listing, folks can go to the website, which is Tulsa2021.org. So we're having, for example, a 100-day countdown to the actual anniversary where there are events that are in collaboration with other organizations or sanctioned by the Centennial Commission, but put on by other organizations. One of the, there are a couple of really big things that we're doing, changing the, the landscape, literally. So we're building Greenwood Rising. It's a world-class history center on the corner of Greenwood and Archer. We raised about $30 million to build this facility. I happen to be the local curator working with, the, with the, a national uh, organization called Local Projects out of New York City. Local Projects designed the 9-11 Museum. They designed um, the uh, lynching memorial in, in 
Montgomery. They've designed stuff really all over, all over the, the world. So we're creating a narrative history center to tell this entire story of, of the Greenwood District, starting with what we call the Greenwood Spirit, its first gallery. Um, in that gallery will be a unique uh, hologram experience in a barbershop, in a black barbershop. We'll have these holograms that will be actually cutting people's hair and interacting and talking about the Greenwood history. The second gallery is and listen carefully to the way, to the label I give the second gallery because it's provocative deliberately. Systems of anti-blackness. So it's not about, it's not about um, opp oppression is a more general, less direct term, but, but we wanted this to be systems of anti-blackness because anti-blackness is a thing unto itself. So that includes the, the um, material about the massacre and a, and a bunch of other stuff. Changing Fortunes is the third gallery. That's the ups and downs after the massacre. The community peaks as a business community in the early to mid 1940s. People don't realize that either. They think it was wiped off the face of the earth and never came back, but it did come back successfully. Then it declined in the late 60s, 70s and 80s for a number of reasons, including integration, urban renewal, um, the lack of a systematic mentorship process for these businesses. By the way, the moniker that was attached to this community, Black Wall Street, I think is um, deceiving in many ways because it wasn't a, a Black Wall Street, it was a Black Main Street. These were mom and pop type operations, small businesses, grocers, restaurants, pool halls, dance halls, movie theaters, haberdasheries, garages, confectionaries, service providers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists. It wasn't an investment or financial type of community generally. So Black mm -hmm. Main Street is actually a more interesting, I think, an accurate label. And then the final gallery in Greenwood Rising is the journey to reconciliation. So what we want ultimately is for our patrons to use the knowledge gleaned from studying the history of Tulsa, the Greenwood District and the massacre and leverage and distill the lessons from that experience to confront current challenges. So we're, we're gonna ask our patrons to think about, you know, what about reparations? What about mass incarceration? What about Black Lives Matter? What about healthcare disparities? We're gonna really be probative and provocative in terms of connecting past and present because wow. it's, it's my belief that there's a, there's a through line. That past and present, if you connect the dots, it's very clear that there's 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 a link linkage. Well, you, you, you're right in the midst of, of, of a lot that's going to be going on. You're going to have the remembrance of, of, of George Floyd. Uh, you're going to have uh, Juneteenth uh, as people sort of galvanize and talk about making that a national uh, holiday. Uh, you're in the midst of Black Music Month, which is June. Uh, so there's a lot of things that's going to be going on. So uh, one of the things uh, I hope you're going to be open to, uh, BET is going to reach out to you at, at some point to sort of talk to you about what you're doing uh, as we sort of look to sort of put together a series of lack of better working term right now, remembering, because uh, uh, there's just so many things that has happened in that sort of window of time between the end of May and all the way to the end of June. So uh, hope you'll be open to that. 
The next thing I want to ask you, Hannibal, is look into the future. And what do you see uh, for our communities and our country uh, over the next four years? And I use four years for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, what do you see for our community specifically uh, from an economic and social standpoint uh, over the next 10 years? Well, I think our fortune certainly just got a lot brighter. So I'm excited <laughs> about that. But, you know, we have more challenges to, to confront. I mean, right now there's a real push to, and it's, it's almost, it's pretty, it's a pretty naked push to disenfranchise black voters specifically. I mean, the idea is um, y'all won, y'all shouldn't be winning. So let's figure out some ways to keep y'all from voting. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty blatant. It's, it's right in your face. So that's a huge challenge because, you know, the, the ability to participate in the, in the uh, democratic process and to elect people to represent us and get us the kind of legislation we need to allow us to do the th kinds of things we need to do economically and otherwise is, is imperative. And, and that's going to determine what our fortunes look like for the next 10 years. So that's why it's really so important. And that's why it's at the forefront of my thinking right now. Some of these political challenges that we, we have to confront are determinative in terms of the economic opportunity that we have. And so, yeah, I mean, I want uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris to succeed. Um, maybe, maybe in four years, it'll be President Harris, which would be a, another milestone, which would be really important. And there would be a backlash against that. Um, so I, I'm always glass half full. So e economically, politically, and otherwise, I, I think that helps me to stay motivated to do the things I need to do to get us where we need to be. So we ask every guest this question uh, because it's called Waymaker. Uh, when you think back and look back over your life, who were some of the major waymakers for you as an individual? Because none of us got to where we are today without having waymakers uh, in our life. Who were they and what impact did they have upon you? So first and foremost, I, I would have to say my parents. Both my parents are deceased, but my father, um, when I was a little kid, we, as an elementary school student, I was in Mineral Wells, Texas, a really small town in Texas. My father was president of the NAACP in Mineral Wells, Texas. He took me to see Hubert H. Humphrey in 1968 in Dallas. I'll never forget that. So the, he, he, his um, concern about um, his, his blackness and his ability to navigate this world was really uh, more inspirational in retrospect than I may have thought it was when I was growing up. My mother was active in the church and was always very um, disciplined, um, community service oriented and all that stuff rubbed off on me as well. We had one black doctor in, in the town that I grew up in when I was growing up and Harry P. McDonald, he's since passed, but he was an inspiration because he was the one black doctor and I was just <laughs> impressed with him. Um, there were people 
whom I did not know except from afar who were inspirational uh, in other ways. James Baldwin was always inspirational to me because he had such command of the language and he was so in tune with, um, with American racism uh, down to the really down to its core. So I was always inspired by him. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, obviously sort of a, a national symbol or icon was inspirational as well. There were a number of my teachers, pretty much all of my teachers, uh, primary and secondary were inspirational in different ways. Interestingly, I didn't have a black teacher until I became a sophomore in college. Wow. But so I had mostly white women. But the, when I when people ask me about that, I say, you know, what mattered most is, yeah, these were white women, but these these happened to be white women who actually cared about my getting a good education. And that mattered more than anything. Yes, I would have liked to have had some black teachers. Uh, as role models, whatever. But I'm fortunate in that I had teachers who actually gave a damn about my education. That's great. So if you had the opportunity to have lunch or dinner with only three people, dead or alive now, who would those three people be? Well, James Baldwin, for one, just because I think it would just be an interesting conversation. And we have lots to talk about since he's been gone. Gone, but still observing, no doubt. So James Baldwin would be one. Um, I think Nelson Mandela, I just think that would be such a fascinating opportunity to talk about his time in prison, um, the contrast between being an inmate and being president of a, of a country um, in a lifespan, that's just remarkable. So James Baldwin, James Baldwin, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. Uh, third. I'm not sure why I'm saying this third person. It's kind of an odd choice. Uh, Lena Horne. <laughs> no, it's not odd. <laughs> I, I think Lena. I've always been fascinated with Lena Horne just because she had a she had a remarkable life. She was incredibly talented. Um, she, she had um, the opportunity, no doubt, to um, go in and out of various worlds, you know, in a very fluid way. And I just think it would be a great conversation. James Baldwin, Nelson Mandela, and, and Lena Hall, yep. and Hannibal Johnson. That's right. That's, That's a hell of a dinner. <laughs> That is, it's a great dinner. <laughs> well, sir, I want, I want to thank you so much for, for your time. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. Uh, we want to support you and the 100th anniversary and uh, do all we can to make sure that there are more people who, uh, as you said, not understand just the riot of Tulsa, Oklahoma, but before that happened, that it's recovery did happen. So I want to thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Hannibal Johnson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. 
Connect with Hannibal B. Johnson at HannibalBJohnson.com. And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at WaymakerJournal.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 